protests erupt at the U.S. Capitol as Biden administration officials make the case to Congress for aid to Ukraine and Israel. Committee will suspend, and I again ask that those in the audience respect the people in the room and allow us to continue the hearing. The hearing will suspend until the uh, disruption is removed. Plus, fighting intensifies across Ukraine as Russian attacks continue targeting energy infrastructure. The region where one of the biggest nuclear power plant is located, and this power plant is extremely important at this period as winter is coming, because the Parisian nuclear power plant is currently not operating. And later in the program, efforts to preserve Ukraine's heritage as Russia looks to wipe it off the map. Today is Tuesday, October 31st. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Two of President Joe Biden's top advisors asked U.S. lawmakers to provide billions more dollars to Ukraine and Israel Tuesday at a congressional hearing interrupted repeatedly by protesters denouncing American officials for backing what they called genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. We're standing up for our interests and values not shrinking back, not in the face of Russia's aggression against Ukraine, not in the face of an intensifying strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. If the witness will suspend, and I ask that everyone again respect this hearing, we will suspend until the room is closed. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Chief Lloyd Austin testified to the Senate Appropriations Committee on Biden's request for $106 billion to fund ambitious plans for Ukraine, Israel, and U.S. border security. As in so much that we do to advance America's national security, our defense, our di di diplomacy, our development must work hand in hand. Committee will suspend, and again, I, I appreciate that people feel passionately about these issues. I would ask that you respect our witnesses and our committee members and allow the American people to hear their testimony. Arguing that supporting U.S. partners is vital to national security, President Biden requested $61.4 billion for Ukraine, making the case in a recent address to the American people. We can't ignore the humanity of innocent Palestinians who only want to live in peace and have an opportunity. You know, the assault on Israel echoes nearly 20 months of war, tragedy, and brutality inflicted on the people of Ukraine, people that were very badly hurt since Putin launched his all-out invasion. We've not forgotten the mass graves, the bodies found bearing signs of torture, rape used as a weapon by the Russians, and thousands and thousands of Ukrainian children forcibly taken into Russia, stolen from their parents. It's sick. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. Biden officials are working to convince skeptical Republicans. Associated Press correspondent Jennifer King has that part of the story. It's a mostly friendly audience in the Senate, but there's deeper resistance in the House, where the new Republican Speaker, Mike Johnson, has voiced concerns about fiscal stability and proposed focusing on Israel alone and cutting funding for the IRS to pay for it. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer reacting to the $14 billion House proposal said democracy and freedom are under attack around the globe and that Republicans should resist the false allure of isolationism. Senate opponents of the massive aid package include Ohio Senator J.D. Vance, who describes the Ukraine war as an endless conflict with no plan from the Biden administration. 
Jennifer King, Washington. Meanwhile, Ukraine's presidential office reports fierce fighting. Associated Press correspondent Charles de la Desma has the latest on deadly attacks in the southern part of the country. In the south, the Russian army shelled the Kurzon region almost a hundred times, killing a woman while visiting a cemetery in Kurzon city. As a result of the shelling of a bus with passengers, five people were wounded and residential areas and a library building were damaged. The attack on vital infrastructure in the south cut power in four towns in the region, including Berry Slav, where two civilians were injured. The Russians have intensified attacks on the Donetsk region, where battles for Adivka are taking place, shelling 19 towns and villages. I'm Charles Tilatesma. And beyond the south, there have been intensifying Russian attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure in other parts of the country. For further insights on the ground, I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. The main target was uh, Khmelnytska region, which is in the west part of the country, and also Mykolaiv region, which is in the south. What's interesting to mention here is that Khmelnytska, Khmelnytska region is a region where one of the biggest uh, nuclear power plant is located, uh, and this power plant is extremely important at this period as winter is coming, first of all, and second of all, because the Parisian nuclear power plant is currently not operating. And uh, some time before, we already discussed that Russian forces basically conducted shelling very close to the Smolnitska uh, nuclear power plant. And now again, we are uh, getting uh, reports on the attack in that region. This is something the new reports on the attacks in the Smolnitska region creates additional uh, risk for the energy infrastructure. Additionally, there are reports of attack on the electricity infrastructure in Donetsk region and uh, at this point we have confirmation that uh, that certain area in Donetsk region is currently has electricity cut. And it sounds like Ukrainian forces are looking to make some serious changes and advances in the Bakhmut area. What can you tell us about that? We have reports from uh, the area of Bakhmut that was confirmed by the com- commander of the ground forces of Ukraine. We are hearing that Russian troops significantly significantly strengthen their uh, grouping and uh, switch from defense to active actions in that area. This what was confirmed by the Ukrainian uh, um, armed forces. The uh, Russian forces are also trying to advance in several directions uh, at once in the Kupiansk region, which is in the, in the area of Kharkiv. And we can see that basically Eastern Front Line in general is getting more active. However, at the same time, Alexander Sirsky confirmed that the defense of the Ukrainian forces is quite successful at this point, but still it's extremely difficult for Ukrainian forces to get this defense done. But he confirmed that heavy losses are reported from the Russian side, uh, from Ukrainian side as well. We're hearing it's not confirmed officially, but we're hearing that losses are also quite high. And at this point, both Ukrainian and Russian army uh, is moving back and forward and certain actions are expected in sometime soon. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ukraine's parliament overwhelmingly voted last week to advance legislation seen as effectively banning the Ukrainian Orthodox Church over its ties to Moscow. The church insists it's fully independent and supportive of Ukraine's fight against Russian invaders. VOA Eastern Bureau Chief Miroslava Gengadze spoke with Viktor Yelensky, Ukrainian religious scholar at Kyiv University, a 
ahead of this week's deadline to put the amendment to law. Ukrainian parliament last week voted to regulate the function of Orthodox Church and foreign media, many foreign media wrote that it's a ban on Orthodox Church over alleged links with Russia. How uh, would you assess this new legislation? Well, it's not uh, legislation, it's just a bill and uh, uh, it was only first hearing and uh, this bill stipulates that religious organization with the center in Russia couldn't operate in Ukraine. On April 11 this year, religious all Ukrainian council of uh, churches and religious organization addressed to the head of the Verkhovna Rada of Ukraine and said that no one organization both civil and religious cannot operate in Ukraine if it has its own center in the country which wage war against against Ukraine. Secondly, this is not a ban. This is regulation. Regulation means that state service of uh, freedom of conscience and ethnic affairs uh, provide examination and if this examination proved that uh, this or that religious organization has its own center in the country which waged aggression, military aggression against Ukraine. State service addressed to this organization with special prescription. And if a religious organization rejected to comply with the law, state service turned to the court. So the last word would be for civil court. This is not a ban. Once again, this is a regulation. The majority of discussions uh, with this um, new regulations centered around Lavra Church, one of the oldest Ukrainian church, and uh, its real estate, and, and why Lavra is important for Ukraine, and what is the significance of Lavra for Ukraine? Kiev Pichersk Lavra is the oldest and most probably sacral uh, site in Eastern Orthodoxy in Europe. Within many years, Kiev Pichersk Lavra has been a sort of uh, nestle of uh, Russian world in the center of Ukrainian capital. There were signs like no schismatics, Catholics, and dogs allowed to be in this or that cathedral. Now, Kipichers uh, Klavra uh, gradually turned to, to the center of uh, Ukrainian spirituality. And uh, uh, some, probably a couple of weeks ago, it was the first uh, first prayer for Hetman Mazepa in Lavra, for, for Hetman Mazepa, who uh, founded many church, churches in plural in uh, Kyiv-Pichersk Lavra and uh, was uh, anatomized by Russian church. A couple months ago, it was uh, Burposki, liturgy sounded in uh, Kiev Pichersk Laura. So uh, now now uh uh, monastery, Kiev Pichersk Lavra, Monastery of Moscow Patriarchate, uh, turned into court. 
about uh, its presence in the territory of Kiev Pechersk Laura and uh, now the court up to make decision about its future. What would you say to those critics and those who uh, belong to Russian Orthodox Church though they call themselves Ukrainian Orthodox Church now what would you um, say to to those who say that uh, Ukrainian government on Ukraine is actually restricting religious freedoms I would say that it's not about uh, religious freedom it's about national security it's about uh, human rights it's about civil obedience subordination to to Moscow patriarchate is not a part of Orthodox teaching a Ukrainian government just asked hierarchy of Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate to stop ties Moscow Patriarchate. Moscow Patriarchate turned out to be the member of military corps of uh, Russian Federation and about 1,000 theologians, universities, professors uh, signed a petition about the heresy of uh, a Russian world teaching because uh, Patriarch Kirill elaborated the special teaching anti-Western, anti-Ukrainian and anti-Christian teaching about Russian world. Completely military and feministic dogma which try to use in our country. We try to do this policy stop a links with Moscow Patriarchate in such a way that be caused any damage, any harm to the freedom of religion and uh, to the conscience of of every single parishioners. How do you assess the possibility of passing this this law and how long do you think those monks and, and priests in Lava would be barricaded themselves in the church? The democratic procedure is it's long actually, but every single day I had conversation with uh, monks, with priests, uh, with bishops of uh, Ukrainian Church of Moscow Patriarchate who are not happy with politics of the hierarchs and with the politics of uh, Moscow Patriarchate. And uh, 400 of them petitioned Metropolitan Onufri, the head of Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate and asked him to convene the council and to finally break the ties with Moscow Patriarchate, which is participant of aggression. Viktor Yelensky, Ukrainian religious scholar at Kiev University, speaking with VOA Eastern Europe Bureau Chief Miroslava Gengadze. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. Without evidence, President Vladimir Putin accused the West and Ukraine of stirring up unrest inside Russia after rioters in the predominantly Muslim Dagestan region stormed an airport to, quote, catch Jewish passengers in a flight from Tel Aviv. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby addressed Putin's accusation. It's classic Russian rhetoric, isn't it? Uh, when something goes like 
bad in your country, you just blame somebody else, blame it on outside influences. Um, the West had nothing to do with this. This is just hate, bigotry, and intimidation, pure and simple. And a good leader, a decent leader, would call it out for what it is, the way President Biden has called it out here in this country, instead of blaming the West. More than 1,000 people descended on the airport on the night of October 29th, seeking to prevent passengers arriving on a flight from Israel from entering the city. A chilling demonstration of hate, bigotry, intimidation. Some people have compared it to the pogroms of the late 19th and early 20th century, and I think that's probably an apt description, uh, given the, given that video that we've seen out there. And Kirby noted there has been no condemnation from Russia or calling for an end to the bigotry and hatred aimed at Jews. As Russia continues its invasion of Ukraine, organizations are working to preserve its heritage and its history, something Moscow appears to want to erase. I spoke with Katerina Gontarova, Ukrainian heritage crisis specialist with the World Monuments Fund, on their efforts to protect Kiev's historically significant sites. One of the projects that WMF is supporting is damage assessment project, because there were numerous initiatives of damage assessment using satellite images, accessible information, publicly available information, social media sources, and all things like this. But the point is that there were not a single group of experts who would do that on site. And that was one of our initiatives to support a multidisciplinary groups that would conduct expeditions on the ground to be actually see what had been damaged, what is the scale of damage, what was ruined, destroyed, what steps could we undertake to mitigate this damage and things like this. So we're funding the this super gigantic, uh, really, really strategic project because according to UNESCO, the number of damage site is just literally not that big. According to the Ministry of Culture, it's up to 835 historic buildings that had been damaged. But we still do not have access to occupied territories Crimea, Eastern Ukraine, where anyone who would give us that information would be under really serious threat. So the damage assessment is organized in two different directions but our, by our partners. And we're supporting one that is related to stabilization, preservation, and reconstruction and rehabilitation. So we do need this information to strategize, to see what's happening on the ground, if communities are active, if the site can be preserved, and for whom it should be preserved. Because this absolutely dystopian scenario of Ukrainian identity that is being erased as you mentioned in your in our communication previously it actually puts us in a very very challenging situation when we have to preserve what we have in order for people who are coming back who are returning to Ukraine who are returning to their home to feel connection to to know that there is a lot of people who are taking care about them there are a lot of people who are taking care of not only about their safety, basic comfort, education, healthcare, and things like that. But there are also a lot of international donors who are willing to support those markers of their identity. And this is why we're absolutely committed to stabilize and restore and rehabilitate those sites that are valuable for local communities. Can you give us a few examples of some of the sites that have particular significance, historic significance, that have been 
been damaged? There were a lot of damage to historic sites on the territories that had been occupied. For now, we're talking about herbicide, when the whole historic city is being almost erased, if not almost erased, then the attempt was very vivid. For example, we're talking about Kharkiv, we're talking about Sumy, we're talking about Kherson, really big, gigantic cities that have layers and layers of historic heritage embodied in urban environment, in architectural sites that had been directly damaged or were indirectly affected by military actions. I would talk about an Odessa, of course. I would talk about UNESCO sites, uh, on those that are on the tentative list. In, Hirs- in uh, Kharkiv, I would talk about the whole city of Odessa that was acknowledged as UNESCO World Heritage Site in risk, in danger. And, of course, I would definitely mention the first attempts of Russians of deliberate attacks on Ukrainian heritage, like the Museum of Marina Prima in Kiev region, like Museum of Skovoroda in Kharkiv region, about the Library of Youth Museum of Ukrainian Antiquities in Chernigiv. So there's a lot of sites that had been damaged, and there's a lot of them that bear Ukrainian identity and the unique code of Ukrainian culture that were almost erased. As an organization, I know that World Monuments Fund is committed to safeguarding global heritage. Mm-hmm. Tell us why, why, what what the destruction of a cultural heritage does for the world and for the peoples where it's being wiped away? Well, for some people, historic sites is the place where that is related to their personal life, to their everyday life, something that they see and started to cherish absolutely preciously when the risk increased, the risk of losing what you have, the risk of losing what you love increases enormously every day since the war started. So people started taking care of their sites, taking care of their heritage, museum collections, libraries, buildings, and one of the most vivid example of how community takes play, uh, take care, takes care about the site that they love is one of our project, Museum of Local History in Ohtyrka. Uh, a year ago, we received an application from museum to basically stabilize the structure that almost collapsed. So we helped them to put a new permanent roof, and it became a really strong point, a really trigger point for for local community to basically to believe in themselves and they applied again because they wanted to rehabilitate the basement. They saw a museum as a social center, as a community center, as the center where they can come and talk about things that they're worried about. So uh, since Ohtyrka, that's not that big city, is located not far away from Russian-Ukrainian border, we decided to rehabilitate the basement that would serve not only as a community center but also as a very safe bomb shelter so for now the this cultural institution bears a number of functions and serves not only as a museum as a cultural center but also as a safe location and a community center where they will have uh, more events meetings seminars educational programs and everything they can to provide any assistance to the local community and for locals I must hurt emotionally 
when you're not just a, an attack on your lives, but also on who you are as a people. Every time I talk to Ukrainian cultural workers, museum workers, librarians, historians, architects, those people mainly act not based on their personal interests, like saving their lives, saving their families. We're in the very early stage of our work, even though we're working in Ukraine for more than a year and a half, because uh, while the war is still ongoing, we have to absolutely must stick to the criteria of safety. And it sometimes have our hands bound because we need to make sure that people we're working with on the ground will be safe and healthy to re and return to their families and their loved ones. But of course, we're all looking forward for password recovery because this is something where we definitely would like to go on with our stabilization and our work in Ukraine, preserving cultural heritage, providing assistance to Ukrainian cultural workers. And of course, we're in the very, very beginning. There will be a lot of things to discuss and to talk about, uh, hopefully, in the nearest future. Katarina Gancharova, Ukrainian Heritage Crisis Specialist with the World Monuments Fund. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world, 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America, Washington, Papa, Bozette, D.C.